Well, we're actually in the middle of a, a three-part series looking at how to fight uh, for joy. We started off last week uh, by talking about what the fight for joy uh, is, and I started off with a disclaimer uh, last week. My disclaimer was this, that I'll be borrowing heavily from uh, this book, How to Fight for Joy. Well, When I Don't Desire God, I think I said last week it's got the best subtitle uh, and the worst title, I think, of a John Piper book. Uh, how to Fight for Joy. Uh, so uh, I don't apologise for... Uh, borrowing from this book. Uh, it's an excellent book, but I'm not going to be reading out huge chunks uh, of the book, and I'm going to try, as last week, not to actually quote from John Piper at all. Um, so that's, that's a, a debt that I owe uh, to this book. This week as well, I'm also going to be leaning heavily uh, on this book, The Mortification of Sin. Uh, I think it's got one of the most sort of intimidating titles. Um, that version is actually an easy read uh, version. It is actually quite easy to, to get your your head round, and that's an excellent book as well, so I commend that to you. Um, So that's the the first disclaimer. The second uh, disclaimer is that uh, last week we uh, were talking about fighting for sin, and we said that it was a fight uh, to see. And uh, this week we're going to be talking about how the fight for joy uh, is a fight against sin. And I'm going to not be saying this morning that all joylessness is the result of sin. That's not what I'm going to be saying this morning. It's not as though it's a particular sin that makes you joyless. Uh, in some places, it can be a complex matter, can't it? All of us struggle to, to fight for joy. That's what we saw last week. But there can be medical reasons. There can be psychological reasons. And there are right and proper treatments that we should seek out if that's the case. I'm not saying that it's all about sin. What I am saying is that sometimes that's not the reason. Uh, so, for, in the Western society as a whole, we do have a tendency to sort of medicalise uh, everything. So, we tend to err on the side of the medical rather than the side of a, a moral. So, if there is a problem, we tend to think of it as being medical uh, rather than a moral problem. So, for example, in the United States, uh, where they've had a lot of problems with uh, high school shootings and shootings in cinema, uh, cinema places, often the news will say, well, we're just still searching for a... Uh, a, a mental condition that this person has that me- has meant that they're able to do this. We look for the medical reason rather than a moral uh, reason. And those people, for example, we're much easier to call them sick than we are to call them evil. So uh, sometimes we, we can just make it all a medical problem. I'm saying sometimes it's not. Uh, but I'm not for a second saying that those medical problems don't exist, but we must be careful to just jump straight to that. And sometimes it might be a complex combination of all sorts of things. Life isn't very simple, is it? It's not that you can point to something and say, this is the reason. Sometimes it's a a combination of things. It might not be the whole uh, reason. It might be that we do have medical and psychological conditions that predispose us to melancholy and depression. But that does not mean that what we're going to look at today does not apply to us if we do have one of those conditions. Having those conditions does not exempt us from the call to fight for joy. Having those conditions does not exempt us from the call to fight sin, uh, as we're going to see this morning. I say this all at the start because it's our natural inclination to minimise our sin. We tend to blame anything else um, before we look at ourselves uh, for our own sin. So when we hear this message this morning, it's actually aimed, it's there for you. We're not to sort of think, oh, I wish so-and-so was here, because they really need to hear this. Actually, whoever we are, 
We need to be fighting uh, for joy. This isn't aimed at somebody else. Whoever we are, if we're not fighting sin, then we cannot expect joy. And we'll see that as we go through. So, our first point this morning is that the fight to see is a fight against sin. Just a reminder for those who weren't here last week, we saw last time that the fight for joy is a fight to see. We said that joy and transformation are found in beholding the glory of God. We saw that in in 2 Corinthians. Where do we see the glory of God? Well, we see the glory of God in the face of Christ. We see it in Jesus. So the fight for joy is a fight to see and savour Jesus Christ. That's what we got to last week. But this week we're going to see that sin stops us from seeing Christ. Sin blinds us to the good that there is in him. And we know it from the Bible, Romans chapter 1, you'll find on the back of your notice sheets, Romans 1, 21 to 23. For although they knew God, they did not honour him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. We said last week that we behold the glory of God through the eyes of our hearts, not through the eyes of our heads. Yeah, sin blinds us. Sin darkens the eyes of our hearts. Eyes that were designed to see the glory of God, well, it clouds them to the glory of God. Every time we swap the glory of God for something else, we we blind ourselves. Uh, We veil Christ to ourselves. We put something else in our field of vision that obscures uh, Christ from us. Now, I know that Romans 1, 21 to 23 is written about unbelievers. It's saying that they, they can't see Christ. But it remains true for us as believers. Because every time we sin, we act like an unbeliever, don't we? We muddle what God has made clear. John Owen writes something similar. This is what he writes in that book I was talking about earlier. Sin darkens the soul. It is a cloud, a thick cloud that spreads itself over the face of the soul and intercepts all the beams of God's love and favour. It's saying there that it's as though sin clouds us and stops God's love getting in like the rays of the sun, if you like. But it also obscures us from seeing Christ. It blinds us. And it's not just that we blind ourselves. Uh, Have a look at 2 Corinthians 4 verse 4 again on the back of your notice sheets. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. There it's saying that the devil is at work blinding people's eyes. Now, how does he do that? Well, I'd want to argue that the main way that he does that is through sin. He actually gets people to sin and stops them from looking to where they should be looking. And I think that's true for believers and unbelievers too. We can never be totally blind to Christ as believers because in 2 Corinthians 4 verse 6 it says this, For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Actually, God has done a work at the level of creation to shine this light into our hearts. 
So God has done this work. We can never be truly blind to Christ. But sin obscures that light. It clouds it. So the devil tries and puts things in the way to stop us from seeing Christ clearly. He can provide distractions that cause us to look away from him. He can use our sin to make everything seem fuzzy. And we know as well, don't we, as well from, as from the scriptures, we know from experience that sin can stop us from seeing Christ. When we fall into sin, it's harder to see Christ for who he is. It's harder to see his glory in a way other than a terrifying presence. Sin ruins our sight and enjoyment of Christ. Sin itself can send us into great depression and despondency. You know that experience? I did it again. Wretched man that I am. Who will save me from this body of death? If you think that last bit's a bit overkill, that's the words of Paul in Romans 7. So this is an experience for the Christian that actually sin sends us to despondency. Sin stops us seeing Christ clearly. We can't see the gospel clearly when we're encumbered by sin. Or to put it really simply, sin kills joy. That's what it does. So you might be wondering with all that then, if sin is so bad, if sin clouds our visions of Christ, it makes us depressed, it makes us down, why do we sin at all? Well, the reason that we sin is that sin promises joy. It promises to make us happy. But it doesn't deliver joy. It doesn't deliver happiness. We saw last week that we always act in a way to pursue our own happiness. That's what we do as human beings. When we sin, it's because sin promises us happiness. Sin says to us, come to me and I'll make your life easier. Come to me and I'll make you happy. Come to me and I'll make your troubles end. But it's a lie. It's a lie. There are some pleasures come from sin. Otherwise we wouldn't do them at all, would we? But the pleasures that sin offers us are counterfeit pleasures. They're fool's gold. They can never satisfy in the way that they promise. It's a bit like the ring in Lord of the Rings. They're they're always tempted all the way through, aren't they, to put the ring on and use it for good. But it can never be used for good. It only ever is used for bad. It promises good, but it always leads to destruction. And sin promises joy, but always ultimately it delivers misery. So the momentary fleeting happiness that sin gives us works against our lasting joy because it obscures the vision of Christ. When we sin, what we're doing is choosing momentary happiness over eternal joy that's found in Christ. Now Moses is a prime example of someone who understood this this equation of you know lasting joy and fleeting happiness. In Hebrews 11 verses 24 to 26, again that's on your notice sheet, we're told about this equation that Moses does in his head. It says, by faith Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered that the reproach of Christ greater, uh, sorry, he considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. 
You see, he chose to lead God's people rather than to enjoy the pleasures of sin. The fleeting pleasures of sin, it calls it here. Now, was it that just Moses was a glutton for punishment? I mean, when you read the Exodus and Numbers story, you might be thinking, why on earth would you choose that? The people were so hard. Well, no, it wasn't a glutton for punishment at all. Look at the end of verse 26. For he was looking to the reward. Actually, Moses was looking forward to a reward. He was working for his own happiness. His own joy. But not the fleeting one that Egypt offered, but a lasting one. Solid joys and lasting treasure. And Moses there chose his lasting joy over the fleeting pleasures of sin. Jesus understood this equation too. Have a look at Romans 12, 1-2, again on the back of your notice sheets. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses... Let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Here we see that Jesus endured the cross for a lasting joy, that he saw ahead, the joy that was set before him. He gave up the pleasures of this world for a lasting pleasure. And our faith is to follow his pattern, looking to the eternal joy set before us in Christ, looking to him and casting aside all that would hinder us. So Jesus understood this equation too. But somebody who didn't understand it was Esau. Now this isn't on the back of your notice sheets, but I'll read it to you. Hebrews twelve fifteen. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. That no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. The reason that Hebrews mentions Esau here is this idea of him just dealing with the, the, the temporal, the now joys. He gave away a greater joy, his birthright, his promises from God for a lesser pleasure. Think about the stupidity of it. He counted a bowl of soup of more worth than the promises of God. He counted the pleasure of a meal more than the pleasure of God. He's given to us an example what not to do. Don't go for the temporal that is now. Work towards the lasting pleasure. So the fight to see is a fight against sin. It's a fight to let go of those pleasures now and work for the lasting pleasures. And the fight is against all sin, not just some sin. Not just the ones that cause us an obvious problem. This is what uh, John Owen writes again. We must hate all sin and not that just that which trouble, troubles us. <clears throat> what he means by that is that sometimes we become so blinded and our conscience is so numb that we only actually fight the sin that we think we want rid of. Do you understand what I mean by that? So, you know, well, I'll fight my unkindness because people don't like me when I'm unkind. It's making me unpopular. But my gluttony, I'm actually quite enjoying that at the moment. Enjoy my extra cake. 
do, do enjoy the biscuits and things afterwards. I'm not saying don't do that. But what I'm saying is we, we only fight the sins that we don't like. But actually there are other sins. We must fight all sins. If we're serious about sin, then we must be serious about all sin. A man called Jerry Bridges wrote a book called Respectable Sins. And just going through the chapter headings is actually quite enlightening of the sins that we almost forget about. Discontentment, unthankfulness, pride, selfishness, impatience, irritability, anger, judgmentalism. If we're serious about fighting sin for our joy, we must fight all sin. You see, our sin problem could actually be far worse than we think. Because we can't see the million splinters in our eyes for the big planks that we've got in them. We must be serious about fighting sin. Why? Well, another John Owen quote, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. Sin obscures our vision of Christ and all that he is. So if we're serious about wanting joy, lasting joy, then we must fight sin. But here's the question, how? How do we fight sin to gain joy? Well, to do that, we've got to grasp something about the fight against sin itself. And that is that the fight against sin has been won on the cross. The fight against sin has been won on the cross. We talk about seeing the glory of God in the face of Christ, in the face of Jesus. But where is Jesus' glory? Where do we really see who Jesus is? Well, supremely, we see who Jesus is on the cross. The cross is where we see Jesus most clearly. Now, by the cross, I'm not meaning the physical cross of wood. I'm just going to pause here because I can see this sinking down ever so slowly. I don't want to scare you all again. It's not turning at all. Okay. The cross is where we see Jesus most clearly, but I'm not talking about the physical cross of wood. I'm not saying that we need to get a vision of Jesus hanging on a cross. What I'm talking about is the effects of the cross, what the cross means for us. The cross tells us two huge things that we must get our head round. The first is that we are incredibly sinful. We are incredibly sinful. It was mankind, our own flesh, that hung Jesus on the cross. We are sinners to the extent that when God came into the world, we didn't welcome him, we crucified him. So tainted by sin are we that we cannot save ourselves. We simply cannot be good enough to merit God's salvation. We cannot do enough works to rescue ourselves. Partly because all our works are tainted by sin. And what works will be sufficient to make up for killing the king of glory anyway? So the cross in the first place is incredibly bad news for mankind. It tells us that we're incredibly sinful and we can't save ourselves. But the second thing that the cross tells us is that we are incredibly loved. We're incredibly loved. God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. The cross tells us that despite our sin, God loves us. It tells us that God wants a relationship with us. So much that he would send his son to die, to take away the wrath that we deserve for our sin. He sent Jesus that we might be acquitted of all charges and declared innocent. That's what the Bible calls justification. 
being declared not guilty. It's not being made good and righteous and just, but being declared righteous. That's what the word means. And that's a really important distinction as we come to understand the cross. Because it means that that righteousness is not our own that saves us. It's not our own righteousness that makes us right with God. It's Christ's righteousness that saves us. So believers do become more righteous and and good. But that's not justification, that's sanctification. And we mustn't get the two confused. Sanctification is an ongoing process where we become more holy. It must happen, but it's not the basis of our standing with God. Our salvation does not depend on our own works, but on Christ's work on the cross. Because if we could be saved by works, well, there'd be no need for the cross, would there? If we could save ourselves, there'd be no need for a saviour. But no, justification is alien to us, if you like. It's, it's not ours, but his. So how do we get his righteousness? How do we get declared innocent? Well, we get declared innocent by faith alone. It's by grasping hold of that rescue that Jesus offers bringing no merit of our own, but throwing ourselves on the sheer mercy of God in sending Jesus to the cross. And when we do that, when we have faith, we're united to Christ supernaturally by his spirit, so that his death becomes our death. Is, there a, is that a wasp? We're getting all, you see what I was saying about the devil trying to distract us from looking to Christ? Well, here you go. We've got, got it this morning. Um, wasps, another product of the fall as well as sin. Uh, but there we go. Um, when we trust in Christ, when we have faith in Christ, we are united supernaturally to Christ by his spirit. So that his death becomes our death. His resurrection, our resurrection. His victory, our victory. We share in his victory over sin. That's why Paul can write in Romans 6, I've got it up on the screen. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. You see, on the cross, the victory was won, the victory over sin. And we are united by faith to Christ in that victory. But how do we apply that victory to ourselves? Well, we see that in our last point. So preach the cross to yourself. We saw that the fight was against sin. The fight to see is a fight against sin. Uh, the, The fight was won on the cross. So preach the cross to yourselves. This is what Martin Lloyd Jones wrote. Have you realized that most of your unhappiness in life is due to the fact that you are listening to yourself? rather than talking to yourself. He goes on to say this, Take those thoughts that come to you the moment you wake up in the morning. You have not originated them, but they are talking to you. They bring back the problems of yesterday. Well, somebody is talking. Who is talking to you? Yourself is talking to you. Now, this is man's treatment in Psalm 42. This is what he did. Instead of allowing this self to talk to him, he starts talking to himself. Why art thou cast down, O my soul, he asks. His soul had been depressing him, crushing him, 
So he stands up and says, self, listen for a moment. I will speak to you. He's saying there that we're to preach to ourselves the gospel. That's what we're to do. What do we preach to ourselves? We preach justification by faith alone. We preach the gospel to ourselves. The gospel says, I have died to sin in Christ. And so Paul tells us there, so you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. It's an act of the mind. It's telling ourselves what is true. That doesn't mean that we lie to ourselves. We don't tell ourselves that we don't sin anymore. That wouldn't be true. We don't tell ourselves that Christians never sin. That wouldn't be true. We tell ourselves that Christ has died for our sin. And that we have died to sin in Christ. We tell ourselves that sin is no longer our master. That we are no longer obliged to go along with it and do its bidding. So when temptation comes, we can tell sin confidently, you are no longer in charge. This is what Stuart Olliot, commenting on Romans 6, wrote uh, in his good book, uh, The Gospel as it really is. It's really just a a commentary on the book of Romans. Uh, This is what he uh, writes. It's a lengthy quote, but it's worth it. There was once a poor slave who was kept as a prisoner in the castle of his tyrannical master. The slave had to do all that his cruel master commanded and became more and more miserable because the tyrant exploited him and made his life one of unceasing labour and toil. Sometimes he tried to escape by leaning a ladder with ten rungs against the outside wall, but he could never get very far up the ladder. Before his master appeared and snatched off a couple of rungs and beat him almost to death. Sorry, that should have read slightly differently. Could not get very far up the ladder before his master appeared and snatched off a couple of rungs and almost beat him to death. There seemed to be no way of getting away from this bondage and its sufferings. It so happened that nearby there lived a great king who out of love for his poor prisoner planned a marvellous way to release him. We need not go into details except to say that the king killed the imprisoned slave by crucifixion. The tyrant came looking for his slave but found him dead. This meant to his annoyance that he could make no more make demands of him. None of the rights which he had previously exercised over the slave could operate anymore. The master-slave relationship that had existed for so long was now at permanent end. When the slave's body was buried, the great king came along, raised him from the dead and took him to his own home. The slave was overcome with thankfulness for the fact that he had been delivered from his condition in such a remarkable way, and was overjoyed that he now found himself in the home of one so wise, gracious and powerful. His heart was filled with sincere love and affection for him, his deliverer, and he determined that he would now serve him. The old relationship had been ended by death, yet he was alive. He recognised that having been given so much newness of life, there was only one whom he could now serve. He was dead to his old master and alive to his new one. He was dead to sin and alive to God. And he goes on to say that, you know, if the old master called to this poor servant and said, you serve me, he can legitimately say, no, I have a new master. I am no longer your servant. And we're to preach that to ourselves. We're to fight sin by preaching the cross to ourselves. But what do we preach when we fail? 
Because we do, don't we? We fall into sin. Well, we preach the cross. We preach justification by faith alone. That our works do not save us, nor do they damn us if we are trusting in Christ. And that's what Micah did. If you're wondering whether we're going to get round to Micah at any point, yes we are, it's now. This is what Micah said to himself in Micah 7, uh, verses 7 to 9. But as for me, I will look to the Lord. I will wait for the God of my salvation. My God will hear me. Rejoice not over me, O my enemy. When I fall, I shall rise. When I sit in darkness, the Lord will be a light to me. I will bear the indignation of the Lord, because I have sinned against him, until he pleads my cause and executes judgment for me. He will bring me out to the light. I shall look upon his vindication. Do you see here that as Micah sits in the darkness, now it might be Israel as a whole, but Micah is certainly using it uh, for himself in a way here. He's included with that. He doesn't deny the fact that he's a sinner, does he? Did you see that in the middle part of verse 9? Because I have sinned against him. He doesn't deny the fact that he falls. Verse 8, second half. Uh, When I fall, I shall rise. He's saying, I, I fall. He doesn't deny the fact that his sin displeases God. First part of verse 9. I will bear the indignation of the Lord. He acknowledges that his sin makes God angry. Now if we miss these things out as we preach the gospel to ourselves, then we've really misunderstood the gospel. Remember that the cross does tell us that we are incredibly sinful. Trusting in Christ does not remove the fact that we are sinners. It doesn't make make us righteous in the first instance. It declares us righteous. So if we make out that we're not morally deficient or have not sinned, we'll get nowhere. But the fact of the matter is that we're not just sinners. We're justified sinners. We've been given the not guilty verdict if we put our trust in Christ and are repenting of our sin. If Micah lived this side of the cross... I'm sure he'd been more explicit about the fact that really it's the cross that he's pleading. That's the grounds of his hope. There is amazing confidence in Micah's words, aren't there? That can only be true if the cross is true. Just let me read, read them to you again. But as for me, I will look to the Lord. I will wait for the God of my salvation. My God will hear me. Rejoice not over me, O my enemy. When I fall, I shall rise. When I sit in darkness, the Lord will be a light to me. I will bear the indignation of the Lord because I have sinned against him until he pleads my cause and executes judgment for me, not against me. He will bring me out to his light and I shall look upon his vindication, on his not guilty verdict. He is confident that God will hear him. He knows that although he has fallen, he will rise. He knows that even in the darkness, the Lord will be a light to him and bring him into the light. And he says this even though he knows that he's sinned. But he knows that he'll be vindicated, declared innocent. Well, how can he say any of this? Well, it's justification by faith. It cannot be works, because he's just told you that he's sinned. It's only by God's sheer mercy in Christ That this can be true, Old Testament, New Testament, or now. And he preaches this to himself. It's what John Piper calls gutsy guilt. 
It's a bit of a weird phrase, but basically an attitude that does not seek to minimise our sin, but nor does it seek to minimise the God's uh, promises of forgiveness to us. It's having the guts to come before God and say, I've messed up. I deserve judgment. I deserve wrath. But the gospel tells me that the cross of your son has declared me righteous in him. I'm a sinner, but I'm a justified sinner. So please forgive me. Now this is not cheap grace. It's not just saying your sin doesn't matter. Uh, Let me uh, read you a quote about cheap grace. This is Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance, baptism without church discipline, communion without confession, absolution without personal confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship, grace without the cross, grace without Jesus Christ living and incarnate. The only man who has a right to say that he is justified by grace alone is the man who has left all to follow Christ. We're not preaching cheap grace as though sin doesn't matter. Micah doesn't ignore his sin. He sits in darkness. He bears the indignation of the Lord. But he is repenting of his sin as he calls to the Lord. So if we're not repenting of our sin, if we're not fighting sin, then we can't expect to be forgiven of it either. That would be cheap grace. But if we are fighting sin, then it's evidence that we're alive and we can be confident of forgiveness. So what we're to do is what John Owen said here. Bring your sin to the gospel. Bring your sin to the gospel. That's what we're to do when we sin. Sin is bad, but the gospel tells us that it's forgiven. So let's follow through the chain of what we've seen these past two weeks. We've seen that the fight for joy is a fight to see. What are we trying to see? Well, it's the glory of God in the face of Christ. Sin obscures our view of Christ and kills our joy. So the fight for joy is also a fight against sin. But Jesus has defeated sin on the cross. And we share in that victory by faith. We apply that victory as we preach the gospel to ourselves. So the fight for joy, part of it, we've got more next week, but the fight for joy is a fight to preach the cross to ourselves daily. Why daily? Because we need it every day. We preach the gospel to overcome our sin and to see Christ more clearly. Well, there's more to it than that. As I say, we'll see more next week. There are means that God has given us in the fight for joy. But here are the questions that we need to be asking ourselves this morning. Are we fighting sin in our lives? If we are fighting sin, sorry, if we're not fighting sin, we cannot hope for joy. How are we fighting sin? Bare willpower or with the gospel? With the superior joys that Christ offers, solid joys and lasting treasure. And are we fighting all sin in our lives? Are we after not just the planks but the specks as well? Well, there is hope of joy. There is victory over sin. So let's pray that God would strengthen us for the fight. Let's pray. Father God, thank you uh, for the gift of joy. Father, thank you that you uh, work within us, Father, that you give it to us as a fruit of the Spirit. But Father, we pray that you would help us to work for our joy as well. Father, we're so sorry that we 
are sinners, Father, that we continue to sin. Father, we're sorry that we swap those lasting pleasures, those solid joys for toys of this world, Father, for sin. Father, help us to live for those lasting pleasures in Christ. Help us to preach the gospel to ourselves and help us to come out into the light from the darkness, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.